You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The U.S. Supreme Court says it will rule on Donald Trump's bid for presidential immunity from criminal prosecution, taking up a historic case that will determine whether the former president can stand trial for 2020 election interference while campaigning for a return to the White House. The move keeps that election interference trial on hold, and the question is whether there'll be time for the special counsel to bring that case before the election. Joining me now is Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, most people expected, and I include myself here, that the justices would be turning away Trump's case. It's taken an awful lot of time for them to decide to take it. It did take an awful lot of time for them just to decide whether to take it. Trump filed his request on February the 12th. And Jack Smith saying, you know, if you are going to hear arguments, do it quickly, had suggested the court hear arguments in March. Instead, the court is going to hear arguments in April. So the court did drag its feet a little bit on this. You know, I think people are going to be scrutinizing this order, trying to figure out exactly what it means. Also, Jack Smith asked them to decide this issue months ago, and they turned him down. So my question is, why now when it will delay the trial? Yes, it's hard to say, June. You're right. Uh, Jack Smith asked the court to do something very unusual back in January, asking them to bypass the appeals court stage. And the court, the Supreme Court declined to do that. Instead, let the appeals court go ahead. The appeals court ruled against Donald Trump, saying he's not entitled to immunity. That was a potential way for the court to speed things up. And now it has the court has apparently decided that it needs to, to be the one to make the ultimate decision here. It will, of course, have the benefit of that appeals court decision. And perhaps the court thinks that will let it do a better job deciding this issue. So this expedited schedule, is it as expedited as you've seen in past cases where the Supreme Court has done this? No. Just to take one data point, if you look at the Colorado ballot case that the court is going to be deciding at some point, in that case, it was 36 days between when Donald Trump filed his appeal and when the Supreme Court heard arguments. In this case, we're going to be talking more like 70 days or even more than that. So about double that time. It is not as expedited as the Colorado ballot case. And then you can look at some other data points like Bush v. Gore, which was much, much faster. It is expedited, certainly faster than the Supreme Court normally does things, but not as fast as Jack Smith and some others would have liked. And Greg, if they have oral arguments in April, we know that they'll come down with a decision 
by June because they're going on vacation. But, I mean, is it likely that in a case like this with an unprecedented question that they're going to come down with a decision before June? You know, I, I'd hate to predict that uh, just because every time I try to predict when a Supreme Court ruling is going to come out, I tend to be very, very wrong. <laughs> it's conceivable. They know what's going on. They understand that there is an election out there. So they'll be aware of that. But as you said, this is a very big constitutional issue, and it's not the kind of thing you would normally think the Supreme Court would want to rush through. So I would certainly not be surprised if it's not until June and even late June before they issue their decision. Joining us now is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner McCarter in English. Bob, we have talked often about Trump's delay, delay, the way he handles not only his criminal cases, but his civil cases. And it, it appears to have worked here. Yeah, sure. No, that's exactly right. And uh, one tactic in any defense team's playbook is to try to delay. Here we've seen that done again and again by former President Trump's lawyers, and it has special significance here given the fact that there is an upcoming election. And so the decision here as to whether and how quickly Mr. Trump could go to trial is especially critical because it could not only affect his election prospects, But should he be reelected, it would actually affect the Department of Justice's ability to bring this case at all, since once he's president, he could simply direct his attorney general to dismiss the case that was pending against him. So it has particular significance due to the timing, because not only the election, but also the possibility that as president, he could effectively end this prosecution. If the Supreme Court hands down a decision in June and it decides that he doesn't have presidential immunity from prosecution, is it possible for the D.C. case, which will be on hold until then, to go forward before the election? That will really be entirely up to the trial judge. The district court judge in the District of Columbia who is handling this case has shown every indication to get this case moving as quickly as possible. Obviously, these appeals have taken that out of her hands. But when the Supreme Court rules, if they do decide to reject the immunity claim to follow the lead of the appeals court, which unanimously rejected the immunity claim, I think we will see her bringing the parties in and setting a very aggressive schedule to bring this case to trial. She's going to suggest that the defense team had plenty of time to prepare for this trial, even while the stay was pending because of this appeal. They could have been working on their preparation for their defense. And so I don't think she's going to give them a lot of time once that decision comes down, should the Supreme Court agree with the Court of Appeals and decide to reject the immunity claim. I think we'll see that case go to trial fairly quickly. Greg, this will be the court's second sort of unprecedented Trump showdown this term. And with their approval numbers so low, I thought they might want to stay out of the presidential election so as not to suffer any comparisons with Bush v. Gore. Well, Bush v. Gore certainly uh, dealt a blow to their reputation. Uh, and it remains to be seen what's going to happen with, with this case and, and the other Trump case. Uh, one can certainly imagine a world where they decide one one way and one the other way say that Donald Trump can stay on the ballot, but uh, is not entitled to, to immunity. I'm not sure what that would do for their, their approval ratings. Um, it, and probably when they're looking at a case like this, they, they are not thinking too hard about that. They are thinking uh, about the, the legal issues and really whether they have to be the ones 
to decide this issue rather than leaving it up to a federal appeals court, as they apparently have decided. Bob, do you think that this was just too important an issue for them to rely on a decision by the D.C. court, even though that decision, I mean, most people who have read it thought it was very thorough, excellent, covered all the bases? Yeah, it was. It was an extremely thorough decision. They gave uh, a, a lot of attention to every single argument that was raised by the Trump defense team uh, in order to try to persuade them that there was immunity here. And ultimately, the decision, which was unanimous, uh, two democratically appointed judges and one appointed by uh, George H.W. Bush all agreed that the immunity uh, would not stand, that essentially what that would have done would have been to allow a president uh, to uh, commit a crime while in office and forever be barred from being prosecuted for it. Uh, it was it was a pretty strong decision, but it turns out that the uh, Supreme Court has decided to weigh in as well uh, on this issue. Uh, it seems like the uh, issues have been pretty uh, thoroughly briefed and argued before. We'll, we'll see the same arguments, I think, again uh, before the Supreme Court. But for whatever reason, they uh, decided perhaps because of the tremendous significance of this decision that the Supreme Court should be the last word on this issue. So, Greg, I have to ask you, the Supreme Court reporters, were they surprised when this came out this afternoon, late this afternoon? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say surprised. This was certainly one of the possibilities that, uh, uh, you know, we'd all been debating which which were the most likely possibilities. But this was certainly certainly in the mix. I, I think my only surprise is that I, I thought that if they were going to do this, they would have done it sooner. Uh, since they are expediting this case, I might have thought they would have done that as soon as all the briefing was done uh, instead of waiting the two weeks. There is this Justice Department policy of not bringing these kinds of trials involving politicians, you know, close to an election. Would that affect whether this trial goes as well, the election interference trial? Well, there is a general rule and a general policy in the Department of Justice that you don't want to bring criminal charges close enough to election that it might affect the outcome of the election. In other words, you don't want to see an indictment returned within 60 days of an election because at that point, uh, a defendant, someone who may be running for office, will simply be charged with a crime and will not have an, had an opportunity to defend themselves prior to the election. Uh, this is a circumstance where all of those issues have essentially gone out of the window because this whole process has become so politicized in the sense that it has always been a race against the political clock because of the campaign, because of the upcoming election. And one of the arguments that the defense uh, has, has raised here that the Trump defense has argued over and over again is they've tried to turn this prosecution into effectively a campaign interference case, saying that it was brought precisely for the purpose of trying to prevent former President Trump uh, for, of campaigning for the, for the presidency. They made that argument in front of the Manhattan judge who's hearing the trial that begins, as you said, on March 25th. And in response to that, the judge simply said that that was not a legal argument. And, and he dismissed it. But as this gets closer and closer to the election, you're going to see more and more arguments being made that this case cannot be tried and cannot be heard, uh, cannot be concluded in a way that will not ultimately interfere with the election. It's an open question as to what might happen if there is a conviction here and if former President Trump is sentenced to jail. 
Thank you so much, Robert Mintz from McCarter and English and our own Greg Store, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, there were oral arguments today and the justices seemed divided on whether or not to strike down the federal ban on bump stocks. That's coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The Aikens Accelerator, the original bump stock, shot at 650 rounds a minute. And the devices at issue here are represented to shoot between 400 and 800 rounds a minute. So right in that range with the M16, the M14. Brian Fletcher, representing the Biden administration, explained to the Supreme Court justices today that bump stocks allow a semi-automatic rifle to fire at speeds comparable to machine guns like the M16 and M14 issued to the military. The question was whether the justices would strike down a ban on bump stocks that was imposed by the Trump administration after the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history at a Las Vegas concert in 2017. The liberal justices like Elena Kagan seemed to think it was plausible that the 100-year-old law aimed at banning machine guns could cover bump stocks. But the entire point of this device is that You exert forward pressure, and you have your finger on the trigger, and then a torrent of bullets shoots out. So I don't understand why it's any different different. from pushing a button and holding the trigger, pushing the barrel and holding the trigger. But conservative justices like Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch, while seeming to acknowledge the government's argument, then question whether banning bump stocks was up to the court. Look, intuitively, I am entirely sympathetic to your argument. I mean, and it it seems like, yes, this is functioning like a machine gun would. But, you know, looking at that definition, I think the question is, why didn't Congress pass that litigation, I mean, that legislation to to make this covered more clearly? I can certainly understand why these items should be made illegal. Uh, But we're dealing with a statute that was enacted in the 1930s. And... uh, through many administrations, 
the government took the position that these bump stocks are not machine guns. Joining me is Andrew Willinger, executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Andrew, start by giving us a little bit of the history of the federal ban on bump stocks. So this is an ATF regulation that categorizes bump stock devices as machine guns under the National Firearms Act. And so, therefore, those devices are banned. This regulation was promulgated after the 2017 Las Vegas shooting, the deadliest mass shooting in uh, U.S. history, where the uh, shooter used bump stocks. And after that shooting, there was some discussion about whether Congress might act through legislation to specifically say that, you know, bump stocks are prohibited or bump stocks are machine guns. And ultimately, that did not happen. Instead, the ATF, under the Trump administration, promulgated this regulation. And, you know, it's, I guess, worth noting here that the ATF has sort of had in the previous decade or so since these devices uh, started to appear, gone back and forth on how it categorized them in informal guidance to the industry, these sort of letters that the ATF would send to companies that were making bump stocks, occasionally saying that some of these devices were not machine guns and could be produced and sold. And so there, this regulation uh, in, in, in 2018 kind of settled that matter. But again, it's the culmination of a little bit of a back and forth from the ATF. So this isn't about the Second Amendment, then. It's about the reach of this federal statute and how the ATF interpreted it. Yeah, exactly. It's a little bit complicated. It's not, I guess, to start... It's it's a lot complicated. (laughs) Yeah, the justices certainly, I think, are struggling with this one as well. So to start, you're right. It's not a Second Amendment case. That's been pretty clear from the get-go. One of the justices, I forget who, actually, you know, explicitly asked this question to Cargill's attorney. And he said, you know, no, we have not made a Second Amendment claim. He even actually suggested that maybe bump stocks are outside the scope of Second Amendment protection because they are dangerous and unusual. But that's not at issue in this case. And there weren't any any Second Amendment arguments being made today. This is really, as I see it, just sort of a, at this point, really a pure statutory interpretation question. And then the question is whether the ATF's interpretation of machine gun to include bump stocks was uh, in accord with the statute, with what the statute means, what the intent was when the statute was written. There have been, and there have been a number of cases challenging this regulation uh, from the time it was enacted. And there have been a number of federal appellate courts that have upheld the rule under some kind of deference approach. So basically saying that, you know, we can't really make heads or tails of whether this this statutory language includes bump stocks or doesn't include bump stocks. We think the language is pretty ambiguous, but we're going to defer to the ATF's interpretation of the language. So there are a number of appellate courts that uh, upheld the rule under that theory, The government before the Supreme Court here has not asked explicitly for deference. So for that reason, what the arguments that we heard are really focused on just this question of what does the the relevant statutory language, uh, single function of the trigger automatically, what do those words mean? And we should mention that the ultra-conservative Fifth Circuit did rule that the ban was unlawful. So the sort of plurality in in, in the Fifth Circuit said that unambiguous, in their view, language in the statute does not extend to bump stock devices. There was a group of of judges 
who had basically said, well, we don't, we don't know, the language might be ambiguous, but because there are criminal penalties here, we think the rule of lenity should apply. But yeah, again, Another this, favorite, the rule of yeah. lenity. Basically, when a law is ambiguous, the court interprets it in the way most favorable to the defendant. Let's move on quickly now from the law of lenity. I have to say, I found these arguments so confusing with the justices seeming to struggle over the technical aspects of bump stocks, over, you know, are you pushing a button, are you pulling, are you exerting pressure on it? Why was that important? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there was, I think, a lot of confusion, a lot of hypotheticals, you know, revolving around buttons and tripwires and and those types of things. But I think ultimately the issue sort of reduces to the perspective from which you view this phrase, single function of the trigger. So the government's argument really just, just boiled down is that single function of the trigger really means single pull of the trigger. So you're focused on the act of the shooter and what the shooter does in pulling the trigger. And that because that pull of the trigger initiates the bump firing sequence when you're using a bump stock, that therefore the the gun is firing multiple rounds with a single function of the trigger. Cargill, on the other hand, says you don't look at this from the perspective of the shooter. Instead, you're looking at the actual mechanical function of the trigger. What does the trigger of the gun do? And the way, uh, again, according to, to Cargill's argument and his attorney today, the way that that works is that when you are bump firing a semi-automatic weapon, the trigger still has to go back and forth. And only one round is expelled each time the trigger goes back and forth. It just happens very quickly. So is this all to see whether it fits within the definition of machine gun? Yes, that's correct. The court's liberals seem to suggest that bump stocks fell within what Congress intended when it banned machine guns. And particularly Justice Elena Kagan, you know, went at this over and over again with Cargill's attorney and, you know, appeared incredulous that a weapon that can fire a torrent of bullets could not be defined as a machine gun. I mean, do you think that the liberals were on that side? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I think what I detected from Justice Kagan, probably Justice Jackson, maybe Justice Sotomayor, was sort of this maybe consequentialist approach to this statute, which is, well, how does it make any sense to read the statute to exclude from its scope devices that would allow you to achieve the same high rate of fire as, you know, a machine gun like the M16, for example, right? In their view, I think that seemed something of an absurd result given the evidence that maybe we have about the National Firearms Act and what what the congressional intent was there. So it seemed like several conservatives were acknowledging that it's functioning like a machine gun. So Amy Coney Barrett said that, intuitively, I'm entirely sympathetic to your argument. And Justice Gorsuch said, I can certainly understand why these items should be made illegal. Then the butts came. And they both thought that this is something that Congress should do. Yeah, I think that's right. I think they thought that this is something Congress should do that, you know, cannot be accomplished through regulation. And I also think there was a strong view, you know, among some of the conservative justices, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, maybe Justice Alito, that, you know, they were very concerned about the potential confusion and the potential for 
sort of people who own these devices to be kind of almost trapped, right, and be like, well, they're not sure what the legal status is, and yet they could be prosecuted criminally for, for having these devices. And so a lot of concern about sort of what the practical impact of this rule would be on people who have owned bump stock devices at various points in time. I thought that was a ridiculous concern. Would people be so confused if the ATF said bump stocks are now illegal? I mean, laws change. Ask the Supreme Court about abortion. Maybe the key point here is that actually, I don't know how much this matters. And there were a few justices who pressed, you know, the government attorney on this issue. The government is not really bringing criminal prosecutions, as far as I know, of those who have possessed bump stock devices, right? And I would suspect that they that they wouldn't do that until this litigation sort of resolves. At least that's what I reading between the lines a little bit of the SG's response here. That that's kind of what I what I took away. And I mean, I I think it's certainly you know, and then this is this is another thing that was raised in response. This is not unique. This issue is not unique to bump stocks, right? There are sort of frequently circuits disagree on various issues of criminal law, right? That doesn't mean that, you know, the the criminal penalties can't be invoked. But I I do think it's the concern that, that members of the court, especially on the conservative side, voice during oral arguments. Do you have a feel for how they might rule or, you know, who's on which side? Right. So I thought one of the interesting aspects listening to to the oral argument today is that, again, you know, this is not a Second Amendment case. It, of course, involves firearms and and firearm accessories, but it's not a Second Amendment case. And that might initially lead one to think, well, maybe the justices will break down differently, right, than than they have in their most recent Second Amendment decisions. After listening to the argument, I'm not so sure that's true. Um, I think you can pretty confidently say that, you know, Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, um, they're, they're, they're probably, uh, uh, you know, in, in, on the side of the government here. I, I think, I suspect that they would vote to reverse the Fifth Circuit decision. Um, Justice Alito, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Gorsuch, and probably Justice Thomas, I would guess, you know, it seemed a little bit more sympathetic to, to Cargill's position. So then you have, of course, Justice Barrett and Chief Justice, who are sort of up in the air. Um, the Chief Justice specifically, you know, didn't say a whole lot during oral arguments. Um, but I think, you know, putting all that together, I expect this to be a, a very close case, um, potentially a 5-4 decision. I'm not really sure which way which way it will go. Um, but again, you, you sort of have those, those same justices, uh, Barrett and Roberts, that are kind of the, the key votes in the Second Amendment area also being the key votes here. Coming up next, state Supreme Courts are rebuking the Supreme Court for its position on guns. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. 
the people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I've been talking to Andrew Willinger, executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law, about Supreme Court oral arguments today over whether the federal ban on bump stocks will stand. Would the conservative justices anti the administrative state stance and, you know, the effort to curtail federal agencies, would that play in here with an effort to curtail the ATF? I think potentially. And, and actually, you know, one, one other interesting aspect of this case is that, of course, uh, the Supreme Court heard argument in uh, the Loper case last month, uh, which deals with Chevron deference. And, uh, you know, a, a major administrative law case where essentially the court is deciding whether to keep a relatively deferential approach uh, to accepting agency interpretations of ambiguous statutory language. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I wonder whether there is at least a, a chance that you see, you know, depending on what the court says in Loper, maybe it articulates some slightly less deferential framework for uh, how courts should approach these situations. Maybe you could see the court in, in, in Cargill sending the case back and saying, you know, look, we think this language is ambiguous, but you need to apply this new framework that we've articulated, or you need to consider these new factors that we've sort of added to Chevron. So I think it's interesting to think about the interaction between those two cases. In the other gun case before the court, where the justices are deciding about a federal law intended to keep guns away from people under domestic violence restraining orders. In that case, do you think the justices were leaning toward keeping guns away from people under domestic violence restraining orders? Yes. So my read of the oral argument, in, and this is the Rahimi case that, you're, that, that you've mentioned, uh, where the court heard argument, uh, I believe, in November, my takeaway after that argument was that the court uh, is highly likely to uh, reverse the lower decision and uphold the federal uh, ban on possessing guns while under certain domestic violence restraining orders. The Supreme Court has expanded gun rights in three major rulings since 2008. And the country right now is reeling from these mass shootings. And this rule was enacted because, as you mentioned, one of the deadliest mass shootings in the country's history. So do the justices consider that there might be backlash if they don't allow even this kind of a regulation? So, I, mean, I think, again, this sort of gets to the uh, Congress versus the executive branch point, right? I, I actually think it was one of the justices actually asked Cargill's attorney point blank towards the end of the argument, what would Congress have to do, right? If Congress, you know, if a congressman came up to you and said, you know, we want to ban bump stocks, we want to pass a law, what would they have to do? What would they have to say, right? What would you, what would be enough? Um, and so I, I, I think, you know, my, my takeaway from today is that the court 
it isn't really concerned about that because it, in this specific case, because many of the justices think that, that this is something that Congress should have done, right? So they're not saying, well, this is off the table. They're saying this was not something that could be accomplished through the regulatory state. And with Congress barely being able to keep the country open, I'm not sure there's much hope of them doing anything with bump stocks. Although this was a case where the Biden administration and the Trump administration agreed, right? That's right. And I think I'm inclined to agree with you that today it's unlikely uh, if this case comes out in favor of Cargill, um, it's unlikely that we would see Congress act. Um, going back to 2018, is that true? I don't know, right? It seemed like maybe at that time there was, we were getting sort of close to a critical momentum to take some kind of legislative action, but of course that didn't happen. So I want to turn to some state Supreme Court decisions because there are two state Supreme Courts that it seems to me are fighting back at the Supreme Court's Bruin decision. So first, explain briefly the Bruin decision and how the court decided there to rely on history. Yeah, so Bruin uh, was decided in June 2022. And this was the culmination of sort of a 10 or 12 year period where the, the court had said in a pair of earlier decisions that the Second Amendment protects an individual right, at least to keep a gun in the home for self-defense. The Second Amendment is not limited to the militia context, but the court had not set forth any kind of implementing test for how lower court judges should determine whether a certain law, you know, it, it violates the Second Amendment or not. And so in the absence of that guidance, the the lower federal courts had developed a two-step test. Um, They would first ask whether the conduct being regulated implicated the Second Amendment at all. Certain people, certain conduct, certain types of weapons, of course, don't even even get you to the Second Amendment. But if if the Second Amendment was implicated, then the court would apply a form of scrutiny, uh, most often intermediate scrutiny, which asks whether the... um, objective is substantially related to an important government interest. The court would essentially do some amount of balancing of the government's regulatory interest in the law at issue and the impact on uh, self-defense. And so that was the approach that prevailed up until Bruin. In Bruin, the Supreme Court threw out the second part of that test, so this scrutiny step where where courts were weighing the government interest against the burden on self-defense the courts that that piece of the test was inconsistent with its earlier decisions, namely the Heller decision. And instead, the court said that when there's a Second Amendment challenge, at least, the operative test is whether the law is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. And that requires, broadly speaking, some comparison to historical laws. So the government needs to come forward with analogous or similar historical regulation, probably from around the time of the founding, maybe also from the mid-19th century. So there are two state Supreme Courts that seem to say the Supreme Court was wrong in the way that it decided that case. The Hawaii Supreme Court earlier this month, in a unanimous decision, upheld the state's laws barring carrying guns in public without a license. And in a pointed rebuke of the Supreme Court, Justice Todd Eddins wrote, 
Time traveling to 1791 or 1868 to color how a state regulates lethal weapons is a dangerous way to look at the federal constitution. The constitution is not a suicide pact. And then last week, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court also seemed to criticize and ignore the Supreme Court in Bruin. It upheld a zoning ordinance that prohibits shooting ranges in residential areas. And the court said, we're not so sure about the history that was used in Heller and Bruin. And we note some serious skepticism with how the Supreme Court is handling these Second Amendment cases. But we can play amateur historian as well as the next guy. So it seems as if these courts, the these two at least Supreme Courts, don't agree with Bruin and are just not following it. Yeah, so I think, uh, I guess I'll start with the Hawaii case, because I think that that's actually maybe the more fascinating one. And this is actually a, not a very uh, difficult question, even under Bruin. What I think is fascinating about this opinion is that there's a brief portion at the end, I think it's two or three pages, and this is a 50-plus page opinion, that deals with the federal constitutional challenge. Most of this opinion is interpreting the provision in the Hawaii state constitution that mirrors is almost exactly identical to the U.S. Second Amendment. Um, And the court ends up saying after a a lengthy analysis, uh, during which, as as you, some of the language you quoted, it is very critical of Bruin and the U.S. Supreme Court. And the the Hawaii justices end up saying that this state provision is limited to the militia context. It does not protect an individual right, at least not an individual right to carry weapons in public. But after doing that, the justices then spend a very short portion of the opinion saying, our holding here is also in accord with Bruin, right? This is the result that you get even going through the Bruin analysis. And I think that's right. Uh, Bruin doesn't say that there is a, a right to carry guns in public, concealed firearms in public without a license. Instead, the court says it's perfectly fine for states to have objective licensing requirements. They just can't have the type of discretionary law that New York and several other states, including Hawaii, did at the time the Bruin decision was issued. So again, this is actually a pretty easy case under Bruin. Um, There's nothing in that opinion, at least as I read it, that requires permitless carry to be permitted. But I think what you see in the justice's choice to spend most of the opinion on the state constitutional issue is kind of them trying to express that they think the direction the Supreme Court is headed may be problematic and trying to sort of explain their view of why Hawaii might be different. And what about the Pennsylvania decision? How often do you see state Supreme Courts issuing rebukes to the U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah, I, I think that's totally right. It's rare, although I will say that Bruin has prompted some of this, even from federal judges. There have been federal judges that have written opinions that are very critical of the test, saying, you know, we need more guidance, right? And, that, and that's kind of the Pennsylvania decision, in contrast to the Hawaii one, I think is more of a, a plea for the court in Rahimi or a future case to provide more guidance about how the historical test should work in practice. So the Pennsylvania case deals with a zoning ordinance that essentially banned firing ranges on 
property that was zoned for residential purposes, limited the area in which shooting ranges could operate. The uh, plaintiff in this case is somebody who had built a firing range on his own property. And as a result of this change to the zoning ordinance, that was no longer permitted. And so this is a uh, an issue that has come up before in some context, and it implicates the question of sort of what the whether the Second Amendment protects an ancillary right to practice or train with firearms. The Pennsylvania court actually, I think, takes a pretty middle-of-the-road approach here and says that, yes, there is a right to train or practice with firearms that's protected by the Second Amendment. So this conduct of building a, a firing range on this individual's property is within the scope of the Second Amendment. I think that's interesting. I don't know that that's I don't I don't know that that's correct, right? This is somebody who uh, I think it's important to note could have gone to a firing range somewhere else, um, but nevertheless, the court says this is within the scope of the Second Amendment, and then relies on historical laws restricting the discharge of firearms in urban areas and restricting where. Shooting ranges could be built, that those laws exist historically, and says this is a pretty clear-cut case where the historical evidence supports the regulation. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Andrew Willinger, Executive Director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing to the Bloomberg Law Podcast or downloading the show at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And attorneys get the latest in AI-powered legal analytics, business insights, and workflow tools at BloombergLaw.com. With guidance from our experts, you'll grasp the latest trends in the legal industry, helping you achieve better results. For the practice of law, the business of law, the future of law, visit BloombergLaw.com. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.